Good morning, folks. Welcome to Gamer Radio. I'm here today with Jay LaCroy of Learn Linux TV. And, well, a bunch of other stuff, too, right, Jay? Yeah, I guess I'm too busy these days. <laughs> You're working hard. You're also the author of the Ubuntu Server is it Bible or Reference? Mastering Ubuntu Server 4th Edition. That's There you go. It's in my collection. I think I, I have it on Kindle because good old searchability. Yep. So uh, we're here to talk about Linux and gaming and possibly some tasty, tasty Raspberry Pi stuff. Jay is a Linux guru. I'm pretty sure he is one of the great bearded warriors of the one true faith of Tux. Is that a fair intro? I'll go with that. I haven't heard that before, but I'll go with it. I love it. But as always, let's start with what we're playing this week. So, Jay, what have you been playing this week? I have been addicted to a game called Triangle Strategy. Have you heard of it? It is in my box of Switch games to play. I have not opened it yet. I started it whenever it came out and couldn't really get into it, and I just put it down. And then um, just about two or three weeks ago, I picked it up again. And I realized, you know, at the very beginning, the story's a really, really slow kind of burn, but I became so addicted to it when I picked it up. I now have like over 70 hours in this damn game. Oh my God. What? A, so for folks who don't know what kind of like genre, and of course it's a Switch game, but could you just tell us a little basics about it? Sure. So it's a tactical RPG. So if you think of your common JRPG, like Final Fantasy, it's not that far removed from the setting. However, the type of battle it is, like one battle could take 30 minutes. So there's not like a bunch of small battles. It's just, you know, big battles that are, it's kind of like a chess game, but the chessboard has terrain and the uh, pieces can level up and become other pieces or higher level versions of themselves. You come up with a strategy that works, which pieces you want out of how many you can have. And the storyline is interesting because it really does, like the decisions you make really do impact the outcome, like legit. You There's all kinds of decisions that you have to make. And sometimes, just like in real life, there's just no good decision and you're trying to choose the mm. least bad decision. And um, characters might leave because they don't like your decision. So you might risk losing party members, but you have to keep your house afloat so to speak, against the other armies. And it's just this really interesting story where you actually feel like you have, like, you know, you're making decisions that matter. And then the graphics are kind of like what Final Fantasy VI would look like if um, it became a tactical RPG. I think it's the best way I can explain what it looks like. So it looks retro, even though it's new. Nice. I love those kind of tactical strategy games. I uh, Yeah, I'm going to have to bump that to the top of my list. So this yeah. week I have uh, I'm on this journey, a vision quest, if you will, to the classic platformers of the eight and sixteen bit era. Mm-hmm. And I started with Mario One, then Lost Levels, and I just completed Super Mario Three for this might be the fifty seventh time. <laughs> yeah, I have uh, lost count. Yeah, it's it's super great. I've been playing the Super Mario All Stars version, which basically is they redrew the sprites, made them larger. And on the Switch, you can pause the game and actually rewind Prince of Persia style. That's really cool. Did you know that Mario 3 is technically impossible for the NES? Is it really? Why? Yeah. I don't remember the specifics because it's been a long time. But from what I remember, and you know, I hope I'm not butchering this, something about the color limit per sprite. So they had to kind of 
override the system, I think by doing some kind of kung fu with sprites where you have more than one, but they're actually one sprite, but the system thinks they're two. So if you have like four colors per sprite, well, what happens if you divide the sprite into quadrants or quadrants, and then each sprite has four different colors, but you join them in a way that makes them look like one sprite. And I think Mario 3 and Kirby's Adventure are the two most technically advanced games on the NES that actually probably shouldn't have been possible. That's amazing. Yeah, I was, uh, I forgot the name of the documentary, but it was about uh, Miyamoto and some of the early Nintendo development. Mm -hmm. Just the level of hackery that they were going through. Uh, Converting the, uh, what is it, rotoscope to Donkey Kong in like two weeks. Yeah. I can make it even worse by putting a different thought in your head. So if you were to open an app, I don't know, like a an office document and save it without typing anything, chances are that empty document is probably four times larger than the um, average NES game. And you haven't even typed anything. Oh, my God. It's like uh, I forgot who was doing it. I think it was Lunduke doing the I'm downloading a very basic no JavaScript web page and it's bigger than most full-fledged computer programs right yeah yep that's so have you been playing anything else this week that's been really at the top of my list because i'm just having so much fun with it and i'm i'm at the point now where i only choose one game to finish but then i also have a list of casual games which i feel like is a great way to tackle a backlog because what you don't want to do is play you know, more than one game at a time, unless mm-hmm. you're good at dividing your attention, that takes a lot of attention. But there's casual games that really don't require you to remember what the, you know, the last thing you did was. I mean, if you're playing Mario, who cares? You're just playing some levels. If you're playing Sonic, you're just going through some levels. That's not really a commitment, but it is a fun way to pass time. So I have a list of casual games and then one, you know, primary focus game. So casual games can be, you know, your Mario games and fighting games and things like that. Something you just set down and, and, and play for no reason at all. But then I have the main game that I'm working on, which currently is the one I mentioned. That's that's really true. Yeah, I'm actually taking a break from uh, Midnight Sun. I don't know if you're familiar with, with that at all. I'm, I'm not, actually. Yeah, do you remember the XCOM game, Enemy Unknown? It was another tactical strategy. I have XCOM on my Switch on my list right now to play, and it's already downloaded. So I haven't played it yet, but I've heard good things, and I, I have it ready. Nice. Yeah, this is basically XCOM with the Marvel folks. So you got your Spider-Man, your Iron Man, uh, Captain Ooh. Marvel. You know, if you've ever seen a Disney movie in the last 10 years. So little known fact about me, my brother owns a comic book store. So oh. anything like that is just like totally up our alley. Yeah, well, then check it out. It's uh, available on Steam. Apparently it runs really well in Lutris, which is uh, something we should talk about. And yeah. Uh, I have it on the PS5. So a- another, by the way, did you know PS5 is a Unix machine? I kind of figured it was, yeah. but it was just an assumption. I didn't actually look it up because, I mean, what else would you build it on? Because I have to imagine when it comes to Xbox, I mean, Microsoft already you know has all the code base for whatever operating system or Windows 11 or whatever number they're counting to these days. They have all that at their disposal. But then, yeah, I figured it'd have to be a, a Unix-like operating system. It seems like everything is these days. It basically is. It's, uh, I believe it's based on free BSD or open BSD. One of those, you know. Those, wow. Yeah. So, all right. Everything's open source these days. I have to tell you, right before this call, I plugged in for the first time a Steam Deck that I just got. Mm-hmm. Another fine Linux machine, right? Oh, yeah. 
So what's the state of gaming for, for the Linux faithful? So that's a very interesting question because I feel like it's different depending on the person. For example, if your favorite game is, you know, game X, and that's the best game to you ever, and it just doesn't run on Linux, then, you know, that's not necessarily a Linux thing. It's just the developer thing. As you know, you're a developer. I, I'm preaching to the choir here. Yep. But each person kind of makes their own decision there because if, you know, for me, there's nothing on, there's no game that I want to play that isn't either on a console or available for Linux. So I never really have a need for gaming on Windows, although I still kind of have my feet in the water there because I sure. want to, you know, keep a pulse on that. But um, the state of gaming, it's getting a lot better. So just to kind of, um, you know, take it back a little bit, one one opinion I have about the whole thing is that I always find the mindset that games are supposed to work on Linux to be interesting because when I was a kid, I had, you know, a Sega Genesis later, a Super Nintendo, but when I had the Super Nintendo only, I knew that a Sega Genesis cartridge didn't fit. I didn't try it. I didn't force it to work. I just accepted it for what it was. You didn't try like, to build like a like a bridge between the uh, <laughs> cartridge well, I mean, readers. I mean, if you would have gave me some technology back then, I probably would have. I didn't have much. But, but the thing is, I mean, Linux as a platform, there's software uh, that works for Linux, Mac, Windows, it's what it's written for. And anytime you try to make gaming or any software, piece of software for that matter, work on a different operating system, you're translating calls and doing all these types of things, which is very complicated. But I think where this passion comes from is that people, for some people, it's not as simple as my game works on Windows only, so I'm just going to run on Windows. Some people really use their computer for a lot more things and Linux fits them for everything else. And then they might get kind of annoyed to try, you know, or to run something on Windows because that's the only thing that works. So there's a lot of these people out there that it's almost like a passion project. I think this is where things start. It's, it's like, I'm going to make that game work. And maybe it's oppositional defiance disorder. I have no idea. But I'm going to make that game work no matter what. And then they'll just try and try. And then we actually kind of benefit from that because we have fixes going into Wine, which is an API layer, I think it's called. Maybe you could correct me on the terminology. And you have all these different front ends and technologies to try to make this work. And then now more recently, the Steam Deck. So even though Linux isn't really supposed to be running these Windows games, it's getting easier and easier and easier for this to happen to the point where I really do feel like it is a platform of consideration nowadays. It may not be for everyone, but I, I do think it's a contender at this point. Yeah, no, it's definitely getting better. I mean, so we're going to get a little techie here, folks, but yep. the Steam Deck is enabled. It is a, isn't it like an Ubuntu Debian derivative? It's actually, Steam. believe it or not, Arch Linux. Of course it's Arch. It's, Arch well, is always in there. rare, stuff. isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's so surprising because the, I mean, for those of you that don't know, you you have your your standard operating systems that release on a schedule, and you have your rolling operating systems, which is what Windows 10 was supposed to be and apparently didn't end up being, where you just get the updates and the features come in. You don't have to reinstall or upgrade to a new version. You just keep pulling in the updates. And that's what Arch Linux is compared to all the other distributions of Linux, which is more like Windows, where there's a release every six months or two years. So it's a little surprising for a lot of people, not so much to me, but a rolling distribution or operating system usually isn't a target to build something on because you're building your software on a moving target. And there, not only is there stigma there, but a lot of developers, you know, they, they just don't want to go down that route. Yeah, it's uh, 
it just ups your maintenance cost effectively, among other things. It, it can. I, I think what I've and I've run Arch Linux as a server, believe it or not. And what I've found is that as long as you have as few packages installed as possible, I mean, get it down to its, you know, just has what it needs to do its thing, then your surface area is a lot smaller and you only have like the Linux kernel and some libraries to update. But, you know, obviously if you're pulling in Firefox and you're pulling in this and you're pulling in that and then some other things, your, you know, surface gets bigger, your support surface, and then that's when it actually becomes hard. So you just have to really understand what you're pulling in. Is there a purpose for it? Is there going to be a maintenance cost to it? And I have to say, I think Valve actually understands that. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's kind of interesting, and I don't I know we're getting super devy here, but <laughs> Proton is a fork of wine, which I did not know until I just looked it up. It is a, a straight up fork. Yeah, yeah, made by Valve, the folks who make Steam and the Steam Deck, with uh, some help and cooperation from the guys at Code Weavers, which are the guys who support wine, and they sell a yep. commercial product. Uh, do, do you remember the name of their? They used to have a gaming. I think they st- still. Ha- I think it still exists. Are you referring to crossover? Crossover. That's what it is. Yep. yep. I've been using that on and off, probably over fifteen years. I lost count now. It's very hit or miss, and we're talking yep. about crossover specifically. We're not talking about the Steam Deck anymore. No. Um, some things work. They have a compatibility database. The whole idea of crossover is to get your Windows programs to run on Linux, um, and they're going to curate a certain number one of those. Like for example, they'll probably. Office. Yeah, Office, right? They're going to fixate on that. But then they'll also have games that work on there too. And what I found most interesting about it, and maybe this is just the sheer number of developers of a new interest, I felt like Crossover has always been good, but it never became great. Like it would, you know, you'd be running Microsoft Office, for example, and then you click on the file menu. Maybe the file menu turns black for a second because it doesn't know how to animate the you know file menu opening up and then it opens up and it looks kind of weird but it works but it never gets to be perfect and the same is true with games i i can't remember which one i this one game was fully supported except for sound you can't hear anything but everything else works you know there's all these different things but then when proton comes out which is valve's answer i feel like their momentum compared to crossover by themselves is unbelievable in such a short amount of time. And yeah, they might've been spending a couple of years on this, but in tech, as you know, that's, you know. Nothing. (laughs) That's basically nothing. And, you know, as long as I've been using Crossover, they never got to that point. And just to give you an example, one of my favorite games is Nier Automata. And I was trying to, yeah, it's amazing. I tried playing that on Linux on my um, desktop, which is very powerful. And it's just a clip show. It just lags so much that I, couldn't get past the intro, but I tried that same game on the Steam Deck and it's perfect. So obviously there's some fixes they need to backport over to uh, the Steam client, which I think they're already working on. But I went from a game that barely works to I can't even tell the difference. Yeah, see, that's that's a huge improvement. I remember the days of uh, really... So way, way back, let's say the Ubuntu 9.10 days, I used to have play World of Warcraft quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And to get that to run and not boot you off the server, oh, like boy. every 20 minutes, you had to go in and like basically overwrite a bunch of config files. Um, oh, wow. Which basically had to do with how, because you would download the Windows client for WoW. And this is kind of the magic of Proton. So what Proton is doing, right, is 
intercepting and translating what our DirectX calls, which is DirectX is the Windows graphic library provided by Microsoft that basically tells Windows how to handle, you know, NVIDIA or AMD or whatever weird GPU you have in there. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, DirectX, the API, does not exist on Linux. So what happens is you just crash, right? Because there's no... Or it just won't even open in the first place. Right, it probably won't launch. So Proton says, I know this DirectX call. I'm going to translate you into the appropriate... Now, this depends on your graphics card, right? Like I'm running on, I have a Thaleo that runs uh, an AMD something, something dark side, but it's the, it's the Mesa software, right? The Mesa drivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, NVIDIA, what, what is NVIDIA called theirs now? I, don't remember. Gosh, I mean, they have just the uh, binary NVIDIA driver. They have the yeah. Nuvo driver that's open source that doesn't really work well for games, but yeah, yeah we just call it NVIDIA. NVIDIA. Yeah. So that's what Proton is effectively doing. And some games, so if you open up the Steam Deck, and I'm sure, Dave, you've had this experience. Some of them have like a little gold or, you know, like plus one yep. or whatever it is. Those yep. are games that Valve's engineers have actually gone through and confirmed are going to run with no problem. That yep. doesn't mean, for instance, Nier Automata, it is, it is not gold rated or even silver rated. They say they're not sure. But you just run it anyway. And the reason for that is a lot of these games are developed in you know, just a handful of engines that are making effectively the same DirectX API calls that Proton can just intercept and translate. Um, I know that's a gross oversimplification. It's a good Uh, one, though. Yeah. Because Wine is not an emulator, is that? It is not an emulator. It is not an emulator. That's right. It is a translation layer, kind of, sometimes. Yeah, something in the middle there. Wine is doing a lot of stuff. The the other alternative that I'm curious if you're using this, are you uh, using Lutris at all? I am not, but I plan on using it. I think I'm going to go more in depth in all this. I, I'm in the beginning stages, and I'm really careful when I tell people something's going to come out because, you know, life. Yeah. But I am, um, I have this idea for a long time to do a gaming guide video, and it's going to go over each of these solutions in Linux and what they are and, you know, some basic information about each. And obviously that'll be on there. Lutris is, uh, from what I, I've seen, it, it just kind of combines multiple ways, and I'm oversimplifying this, of, a- of accessing games. Because, for example, let's just say you have some games in Steam and you just managed to get them all working. You're probably pretty happy. But what about, you know, any games you might have made by Blizzard? They're not going to be in Steam. So what do you do, right? You, you want to get the you know Di- Diablo 3 or whatever running. Lutris is one of those that could pull in those other sources or have a way for those other sources of games to work on Linux that aren't natively supported. Because sure, some Steam games aren't natively supported, but the Steam client itself is natively supported. There is no Blizzard client that's native, natively supported on Linux. So then you have solutions like Lutris that'll try to combine all that. And of course, your retro games, if you want to run, you know, your classics or something like that, you could also do that through Lutris. So Lutris seems to be more of a overall shell to your gaming collection, kind of like your window to everything. And then it'll launch whatever the appropriate app is to run a game once you set it up. Yeah, most of the games, like for instance, World of Warcraft, have a script that when you install it via Lutris, it actually detects it, does a bunch of basically setup config stuff for you, like I used to have to do back in the day. And it's pretty great. Actually, if you play, I, I know you don't, but if you, for folks who do, play Magic the Gathering Arena, first of all, check out the Discord Friday nights, 9 p.m. We do a brawl tournament. And second of all, if you are rocking with Tux, 
it runs flawlessly in Lutris. Oh, wow. I'm going to have to check that out because I haven't uh, checked it out at all in any way, shape, or form. So I need it's, to. Yeah, I was surprised, especially given that it's an online game and they have anti cheat nonsense. I thought for sure that, because that's an area where you know you can get caught up running things in like Proton, right? The anti cheat oh, freaks out. <laughs> yeah. So, because yeah, no. we're on a different operating system, we're cheating, apparently. What's the strange line endings? I don't, I don't, I don't like that. It's like, no, good, go away. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned retro games, and I know you're the lord of the Raspberry Pi. Well, I actually, I think that title goes to Jeff Gearling, but I'm, mm, sure. yeah, I'm probably right up there, like right underneath him, actually. He does way more content about Raspberry Pi than I do. But uh, Raspberry Pi, you know, these computers, these small boards, they, um, depending on if you can actually get one right now, they're, they're usually under $50. Yeah, what a shortage. Like Short, yeah. But they're more, I mean, they're orders of magnitude more powerful than my first full computer, which is so crazy to me. And you could build something from it. You could build a computer with it if you want. You could build a robot. I knew someone that built an automatic door opener for a business using a Raspberry Pi. I literally just got my hair cut the other day and I noticed that they're running a Raspberry Pi for the signage. And I know because they have the wrong power supply with that lightning symbol in the upper right corner. You can't mistake that, right? I love it. (laughs) Yeah, they're everywhere now. Oh, yeah. At the Mad Botter, a lot of the uh, consulting work we do for, you know, uh, our enterprise customers are basically building custom machines and writing a custom application that just runs on Raspberry Pis, even as little as the Pi Zeros, believe it or not. So, wow. Yep. Yes, that is definitely a great way to get started with retro gaming. And it's interesting that this kind of came full circle because... Something RetroPie like, and RetroPie is the applica- one of the applications you can run on a Raspberry Pi that facilitates gaming. But my YouTube channel actually started from gaming. Uh, Linux is, you know, my career and everything, and that's mm-hmm. the direction that it went. But one of, if not the first videos I've ever uploaded was me showing off a custom retro game PC in my bedroom. Oh, that nice. was created on a Dell Xeno, which predates the Intel NUC. It's a lot bigger than a NUC, but back then they were probably the smallest computers that they had. They're okay in terms of specs at the time, but I, I found one. And then I used Myth TV and a bunch of other pieces of software, hand-coded XML menus to launch the emulators. I basically created my own RetroPie before I think RetroPie was a thing, but this was just for me. I was just kind of playing around. It wasn't something that I wanted to release or anything. I didn't feel it was good enough, but it it worked for me. So I was showing that off and then people are like, well, how did you make it? So I'm showing on the Linux terminal, you know, here's how I have the command set up. And then next thing you know, you know, the Linux side really takes off there, but it it kind of comes full circle because I feel like RetroPie, um, and I know there's others, but this is the one I'm most familiar with. It is that, but it's not difficult. You don't have to hand code anything. You can if you want to, but you don't have to. You could just use it as more of a turnkey solution and load your games on there and hook it up to a TV, pair a Bluetooth controller, and next thing you know, you have all the classics. Yeah, there is a company, and I'm I'm not sure I have the name right, so I'm not going to say it, but they, uh, they're actually local to here, but they sell nationwide. They build arcade cabinets, custom arcade cabinets. Mm. And I, I met the guy at a convention, a TCG con. And I said, well, what is this like a nook? He laughed. It's, they're just Raspberry Pi 3s. Yeah. 
and they just hook up a screen and they do custom woodwork. You're, you're paying for the woodworking, right? Because they'll paint it for you. They do. I, I might even be interested in this too if I could find room for an arcade machine. <laughs> there you go. I mean, they're 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 definitely pricey. They're a lot pricier than let's say a one up cabinet. Right. But it's uh, I'm amazed. He's like, yeah, it's, it's just a Raspberry Pi, and we have a they have a slightly modified version of uh, Retro Pi, and they preload whatever the games you give them a list and. Seems super legal, Ahoy mateys, right? But yeah. Yeah, I mean, the whole emulation law thing is interesting because I, I feel like a lot of people just overcomplicate it when they d- debate it in forums and everything like that. It's, it's just kind of funny to me. But at the same time, you know, the way I look at it, I'm not condoning, obviously, anything when it comes to piracy. But what I will say is that the companies that own the rights, they are terrible stewards of their intellectual property. I mean, we could literally have on Nintendo right now, and I hate to use this term, but I will, an iTunes-like experience where you have the majority of the hmm. entire library and you could just pull them down. I mean, we kind of had that the virtual console, but at most they, they probably supported one-tenth of the library or something. It was embarrassing. And yet they, they're all against piracy. Well, they, in emulation, they have to understand um, either the company is going to create the solution or we will. Right, so if you don't like us doing it, then you do it better than us, and then we won't need to. Well, also, Jay and I are not lawyers. Do not take anything we say as legal device. Right. But generally speaking, you do have a right to make backups of any digital media. Uh, particularly if it's on a disc or a drive like i don't know switch sd cards there's been no legal precedent set as of a couple of months ago when i looked of anyone you know getting in trouble for personal use or backup copies of their own just can't sell them you just right Right. and there's been many precedents set of people you don't even have to sell them you could just make them available on a website that's linked to you in any kind of way. And I guarantee you, it may not be today, may not be tomorrow, but you're going to be in trouble. Don't even bother with that. You'll get but, a DMCA. Yep. Exactly. But for personal copies, I mean, I think it's so important because, you know, I, here's the thing. I collect the physical games. So do I. Yeah. Y- you know, I have a ton of these. So I, I, do- I, you know, I buy the game from a secondhand store, eBay or whatever. I download the ROM and I prefer to play on the real hardware, but you know how it is. You don't have a lot of room sometimes, and maybe your Super Nintendo is under a few uh, boxes in the storage room, but you have this ROM image of the game you bought last week. You, you could just play it right now without having to resort anything or dig something out. But even more so, you know, there's other challenges like save batteries. They only last 10 years, and some people are like, well, it's easy to solder a new battery. Yeah, it is, but you will lose your save files. And I'm sorry, if I get all my characters at level 99, I'm not trying to lose that save file. So with emulation, you could back up the save files. Some of these systems are hard to get working nowadays because some of them were built better than others. And I I feel like emulation kind of keeps this alive for generations that may not have any other way of experiencing these games. Yeah. First of all, I like how you, you just like hand wave and say, oh, you could just solder on another battery. That is very hard, Jay. No, nobody's doing well, that. You'd be surprised. A lot of people in the collecting space, they're, they're doing it. It's a lot easier than what you think because there's a, we call it the Nintendo screwdriver. I have a few of these okay. and because of the special screws. And to be honest, you could actually just wiggle the battery and up. Don't do this, by the way. No one should do this. But I'm just saying, hypothetically speaking, if you just wiggle the battery and it comes off because it's soldered on, and then you just you know touch the battery to the connector and then use electrical tape, 
it'll work with no soldering it'll look horrendous but actually i think it's one of the easier soldering things to do i don't even really know how to solder but at the same time it's just one of those things that do you want to you really want to do that i mean it's one thing to own the original hardware and you should but when it comes to playing it that sometimes is the hard part we have an entire youtube channel uh, my life in gaming i think it's called where a lot of their content is just how to make old games look good on new televisions. And, and they get a lot of views on that because a lot of people. Well, that's a huge issue. That. That's a huge issue, right? Even even yeah. going back as modern as, let's say, so I'm in the market to try to buy a decent shape Dreamcast. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've looked at modern TVs recently. <laughs> You're yeah. going to have a problem there, right? It, it, the, the games were not developed for this type of, what, this high DPI, right? Uh, the size of screen. And there, I have been reading, there are a number of strategies and like little add-ons you can get to uh, basically compensate for that. And then if you want to go back even further, if you're talking about like a Genesis era, your TV probably doesn't have the connectors if it's a modern TV. So, Right. And, and you know, at first it's it starts off easy until you get technical. There's companies that actually make cables that end in an HDMI cable that uses some kind of trickery. They're all different to make this work. There's a, I forgot the name of the company. I bought some of these cables from a company in the UK. As far as I know, they're the only ones making these, where there's actually a um, small board computer in the middle of the wire. Oh, wow. I think it's an Arduino, if I'm not mistaken. And, And the cables cost maybe $30, $40, something like that. But they're probably the best picture you can get without buying one of those expensive converters and they just plug into the system. It it couldn't be easier when you buy one. And and that's fine, but you're converting it at that point. And then um, I've had situations where even on a 1080p TV, you know, just one of the older generations HD TVs, where it'll still look bad because sometimes if you're playing an RPG, the text could be hard to read and you have to really kind of squint to see it because it was made for a, I think a 240p screen. So 1080p, okay, 240p back in the day. And some of them were up to, I think 480 if I'm not mistaken, but even then that's less than half and it's underneath 720p. So you're going to have all these issues, but I think most people are probably satisfied just to buy those cables and call it a day if they have to, do something on their TV to magnify the text windows or something, that's fine. They're probably going to be okay with that. But when you want a pixel perfect picture, that's where things get expensive and challenging. In my case, I bought a couple of the analog systems that that analog is a company and they make these FPGA consoles that are perfect, but you're going to, they're hard to get. Uh, they're a couple hundred dollars, but then they get scalped. It took me years, like I think two years to, to source the um, their analog NT. And uh, I forgot what the other one called, the Super Nintendo one. Anyway, it took me a while to source those. And I'm glad to have them. I didn't want to pay scalper prices for them, but they're hard to get. So that's when you start to go down this rabbit hole. And then when you start to look at modding HDMI directly into the consoles, difficulty goes up. And if it's Nintendo 64, difficulty increases by 100 points instantly. And that's where it gets complicated. But I think for the average person, probably you should stop at the cables and don't go down that rabbit hole because it doesn't end. Yeah, you're probably. <laughs> wow. these. So I'm looking at these analog uh, boxes. Oh, my God. They're so perfect. Like the best picture you can get on an HGTV. It's phenomenal. Wow. And they are all sold out. Fulfillment Group 2023, Fulfillment Group C which implies that there's a fulfillment group A and B already. 
the analog pocket, which is incredible. It took, I think I pre-ordered it a year ago. It came a, m- a month ago. And it's really neat because you could buy a, a dock with it. And I did that basically makes it a Nintendo switch like experience where you can sync a controller to it and play on nice. your TV and you could take it off the dock. And um, it takes Game Boy, Game Boy Color, Game Boy Advance cartridges. And they're coming out with an adapter for it to take other kinds of cartridges too. And it took, yeah, it took a long time for that to arrive. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to dive into this thing. So I've been having some fun with that. But again, that's not for the faint of heart because I think the average person probably, one, wouldn't be able to get on the waiting list fast enough. And two, probably wouldn't, you know, want to pay the price because they they are expensive. They're they're pricey. Yeah, it's uh, 220 bucks, just the base analog pocket without any accessories. And I'm pretty sure you definitely want at least the dock, which is another hundred. And yep. and there's know. the analog NT, which is the NES system. There's the I think Super NT, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. for Super Nintendo. The Mega N, Mega SG. I think I, I can't even remember these. Yeah, it's, it's the Genesis. Yep. There's the Genesis one, which I I, I finally sourced all of those. <laughs> it took me so long to get them too, but you know when you get into game collecting, it it I mean it doesn't have to be an expensive hobby if you're just buying one offs here and there, but if you or like me, um, yeah, there's there's a lot. Wow. This is interesting. Oh, and they're, look, wow, they're all sold out. And they will be for some time, unfortunately. I, I did, one of them I actually did get direct from their website. I, I was just, you know, looking at my email at the right moment and, oh, there's going to be a sale. Oh, I'm on that site at that time and I'm going to get it. So I got lucky once, but I, th- I think that's kind of um, how it is nowadays. But the worst thing about them is that they start they stop making them after a time, which drives me crazy because I feel like if they kept producing them, there wouldn't be a problem. Yeah, they could just well, I'm sure the scarcity helps drive the uh yeah the the buzz. Yep. Okay, so if someone wants to get in to uh retro gaming mm-hmm. and where should they start? Let's say they're you know an avid gamer, they're not super techie. But they know enough to, you know, maybe SSH into a, a Linux machine. Mm-hmm. So in terms of emulation, good place to start is just, honestly, you don't really need much. I have videos on my channel that goes over this. They're, they're quite old, and I will warn you, they're not at the production quality of my recent content. So if you're willing and to look at that, that art, what's that? What channel oh, Learn is Linux that? TV. Yay. There'll be a link in the show notes. Yep. So they're older videos, so just keep that in mind. They're not the best quality, but but they are, I mean, everything I say is still true. You really just need the Raspberry Pi board. So Raspberry Pi 4, for example, would be perfect. Also, before I mention anything else, have um, the right understanding about what's possible here because Super Nintendo, Nintendo, Sega Genesis, absolutely all day long. Game Boy Advance, no problem. Actually, any of the Game Boys, no problem. But when you start to get into the higher end systems, like PS1 is fine, so PlayStation 1 is fine. But anything after that is where you start to run into the restraints of the platform. So if you're trying to run Sega Saturn, Dreamcast, GameCube, PS2, you probably shouldn't try it right now. Maybe if a Raspberry Pi 5 comes out, we might be closer to that. But as long as it's PS1 or below, you should be fine. So with the Raspberry Pi board, you need a power cord, an HDMI cable, and a controller. SD card, that's it. That Those are the requirements that you can't get around. Um, I, honestly, you could get around the SD card if you're super techie by doing uh, PoE, or not PoE, but um, you know, pixie booting, but we're not going to get into that. So you have right. those requirements, and, and you know, unless you're playing, unless, unless it's still a problem to source a Raspberry Pi, 
probably $40. You don't need like the eight gig version. The two gig is fine. I mean, you can go to four if you want. Probably no reason to go any higher than that. or Otherwise, you're just wasting money. You could just buy a wired controller for $20. I mean, they're they're out there. Or a Bluetooth controller if you'd like. And then you just install Raspberry, or excuse me, RetroPie onto the SD card. There's a tool on Raspberry Pi's website that'll facilitate that on any operating system. And once you boot from it, you'll have a network share set up. So if you go into your operating system on your computer, browse for network shares. If your Raspberry Pi is online, you should see it. And then you can just drop your ROM files right into that folder and restart the UI. And that should be it. And then you should have the games running. Um, obviously, some game systems are have more steps than that, but the documentation is great because for every console, if there's anything you need, like a BIOS file or whatever, they'll tell you. So at least you'll be aware if you're not getting good exper- um, performance, it could just be a missing um, BIOS, for example. So um, you'll, you'll find that in the documentation. But for most of them, they pretty much work out of the box. If you want to get started with physical game collecting, then I would say your local antique store, yes. uh, you never know what you're going to find because they may not know what it's worth. And you, uh, I recommend, I mean, if you have an antique store near you, go there, just just have a look around. And most of them do know what they're worth nowadays. I, I can tell you from experience, I've been to all the, the antique Google. stores. Yeah. But there's, there's probably a few of them out there that may not. Either way, uh, even though the prices of these games are skyrocketing, not all of them are expensive. If you look at some of the Mario games are so common that they're not even collectible. Yeah. So you can Sonic the Hedgehog easy. There's a lot of games that you could buy for probably less than $20 a piece. And some of them even less than 10. If you're looking at the right one, it's not until you get into the more scarce titles. Like that, Japanese you know, imports of stuff that was never published in Europe or yeah. America. Yeah. Exactly. That's when you start to get into trouble. But there's also some game consoles that are highly collectible, like the Atari Jaguar, which mm. I have. Oh, my wow. God. <laughs> I paid like probably I think $300 for that. That's wow. not going down anytime soon. So there's going to be some of those that stand out. And I'll never understand why it seems that some of the failures are the most expensive. Like Jaguar failed, but it's one of the higher priced systems. And same with Virtual Boy. You can't make this up, but the the least... Systems people want are also, you know, the most expensive, which is interesting. Yeah, that's it, of course, right, because there was less in circulation. I'd also recommend if you are going to try to pick up some old games, flea markets, believe it or not. I've oh, had yeah. some good luck just because a lot of those dudes buy bulk. You know, oh, they buy, yeah. And they, you got to be willing to, to be a little bit like a Greek trader, right? You got to be willing to haggle because usually they want to move product. And especially if it's, you know, you're not going to like walk out of there with insert your obscure Japanese game that has never been published in the United States. Well, you, the guy. you say that, but some people you have might. gotten lucky. You know, Nintendo PlayStation, one of those has been found. Um, a, a pre-release Nintendo 64 disc drive for the United States market that never came out was found. Wow. Somebody found a Final Fantasy II, the NES game, translated into English, which was not complete, but shows that they were actually planning on releasing that here. I don't know why they canceled it, but somebody found the prototype. And I'm thinking, you know, I want to just once get lucky and find something that's that unique. That'd be so cool. I never get lucky at these things. I, I do better with games themselves, but I have been hunting for a reasonably priced, and this is the key, not weirdly stained Dreamcast. I don't know what, what went on with the case there, but these things are like yellow. It's really. I, I feel bad. I have like six or seven Dreamcasts. I think. <laughs> How do you have seven Dreamcasts? 
different models and then some of them broke and I replaced and I know how to replace I know how to fix the parts because it's probably the easiest console to repair that's it ever really been is. made. Oh yeah, my it's, god. It's like a snap together kit on the inside practically. Hey, 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 hey. Sega was trying, okay. <laughs> it would I mean no, I mean that in such a great way. Like if if all the other companies made systems like that, it'd just be so much easier for people to repair their systems and keep them going. The most notorious problem that I've run into with Dreamcast is if you have a controller, I, I don't know what the issue is in the controller, mm-hmm. it'll pop the, um, I forgot what technical term you use. I'm not an electrician, but one of the transistors or whatever they're called. And your controller ports will just not work anymore permanently. Yep. And you, if you replace that part and then plug in the wrong controller, whatever one caused that to happen, then same thing happens again. So just find out, find some controllers, like four or five of them, maybe six to have some spare if you could find them that work and have no problem and just just don't put random controllers in there but they also make mods that apparently make this not an issue at all regardless of what you plug in but there's there's these things but replacing the controller ports i mean what is there like just after the screws to get it get it open there's like two i think on the inside and just lift yeah. it up and set the new one down and that's it <laughs> that's it yeah the, the dream, it's pretty it's pretty it's like a connect set like you were saying I do, yeah. other just you mentioned the controllers other point of caution that has bit me right in the butt when buying at flea markets or you know secondhand stores controller drift is a thing and not just on the switch and i can't tell you how many times particularly like and remember the old n64 controller oh yeah i hated that, that controller so i hate much. yeah i still hate it I, the, that i get one where the joystick for some reason looks it looks fine i'm very picky so like it has to be looking pristine it turns out it's just busted on the inside and always like leaning to the right or left or something crazy like that so wait a minute you use the stock analog joystick with n64 you know when i do it i want to go for the real experience yeah we yeah in the gaming collecting community we kind of got over that when it comes to nintendo 64 because (laughs) there's a reason why they make replacement analog thumbsticks for real nintendo 64 controllers you'd literally just replace that one part your aftermarket they're premium quality, some of these. They feel great. Some of them are literally like GameCube quality in terms of the analog joystick. And maybe and I just need to get a different game. Yeah. So, and it's, um, it's, it's highly recommended if you can uh, source that part if, for Nintendo 64 because that controller, I just don't... I know a lot of people were really into that, but I just don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> well, they're also fragile. I have not come across too many that weren't in some way slightly just busted. Yeah, it's... The controllers weren't made that well. I think there were a few third-party controllers that really took off. I just forgot the name of them. A, a lot of people I knew had them back then. So the, the Nintendo 64 is a weird console because in one way it was actually a downgrade from Super Nintendo because they removed the RGB chip in the Nintendo 64 that was present on the Super Nintendo. And as a result of that, when it comes to HDMI modding and things like that, um, it's harder because you have, I mean, without <coughs> RGB to hook into, you, I mean, how do you mod HDMI into these? You, you mod RGB and HDMI, and it becomes more complicated. So I think uh, the Nintendo 64 in general is kind of like a, a strange console in a lot of ways. It was really great at 3D graphics, not really that good at 2D, though, interestingly enough. It's a strange console, right? They they went all in on the 3D. It also doesn't have the largest library of games you would want to play compared to, oh. yeah, let's say, the obvious PS1, right? Yep, I would say there's probably 15 to 20 games I really enjoy on that system versus 
anywhere from like 60 to 80 games on Super Nintendo and PS1. I mean, their library just, they, there's more of a varied library because think about it this way. There's not one single Street Fighter game on the Nintendo 64. Now let that simmer in your mind. For That's me, right. Because, you know, there's a reason for that because it's going to be harder to run 2D on that system. And Mortal Kombat Trilogy, which was also released for the PS1 and the Nintendo 64, the PS1 had load times, which, which made it unbearable. But in all other ways, the PS1 version was superior to the N- Nintendo 64 because that version was missing characters. And they, they just tried their best. But, you know, if, if the hardware doesn't cater to 2D graphics, then what are you going to do? So without that, then I'm sure that's why we didn't have a single Street Fighter game on it. Oh, that's so true. I forgot that it would. they really did go on on 3D. Also, this is where I get in trouble in the comments later. Uh, a lot of that generation doesn't really hold up. Like, I... No. It yeah, look, the 16-bit generation, they, they have a lot of replay value. Yep. Yeah. They had to work harder. I think the the higher up you get in the, in the specs of these systems, you kind of lose some character in a way because I feel like part of the character was how the developers had to work against the system. Nowadays, we have memory for days, right? I mean, if I, if I went back in time when Nintendo 64 was new and told them how much RAM I have on my desktop, they would probably look at me cross-eyed, um, either because they don't know what memory means or because it's a, lot, a large amount, depending on the person. But you know, in that time period, before then, you really had to work harder to oh, make yeah. anything work on a system to the point where Crash Bandicoot, you know, famously, they found a way to, um, I don't know how they did this. There was a, a portion of memory reserved for the OS that they wanted to borrow from, but there's like this wall that they can't get past. Mm-hmm. They found a way to break through and access memory on the system that they're not supposed to access to do something they're not supposed to do. And this was common, like that was part of the job. Like everyone that made games back then it was part of the culture to try to work against the system, which is literally what broke Atari Jaguar, made it fail. But in general, that's just how the development goes. But nowadays, I mean, the amount of memory that we have, we really don't have to make as many sacrifices, if any. It, it really is an embarrassment of riches. I mean, we, we should wrap up, but just, just something to ponder. Mm-hmm. The last few generations of smartphone are easily more powerful than most consoles. Uh, I think folks listening to the show had as yeah. children or young adults. Yep. And that's, that's like, so when people tell me, oh, you know, mobile games aren't real games, I'm thinking, this thing's like 20 times more powerful than an SNES. I think least. what they're saying, yeah. though, is that it's the, the style of games. It's is, the design. It's yeah. the, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's a, that's a, like you said before, that's a de- developer problem which could be fixed. Yeah, I I would say for mobile, I I don't really play any games, but there was one called Pocket Cities, which is a SimCity clone that I played for months and couldn't get enough of until I basically did everything you could do. But most of the time, the games are, you know, bad by design, meaning they just, you know, you got to pay to win. Like microtransaction. Yeah, Yeah, smart fairies. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. All right, Jay, where can folks find you? LearnLinux.tv. Pretty much everything I do is there. All right, and we'll throw uh, Jay's uh, socials and YouTube channel and all that goodness and a, a link to your newest book. Now, is there another edition coming out? I feel like I just got one. No, that was the most recent, if you have the fourth edition. There's currently the nothing being written, but you never know. Maybe the next time we talk, I might be writing something then. So how about a eulogy for the Atari Jaguar? Oh, man, I love I, it. <laughs> it's, it's, I could tell you talk about Jaguar like I talk about Dreamcast, just with well, sadness, like. I feel like it should have succeeded. And and a lot of people will say that it was the 
the fact that the development kit was so difficult to work with that killed it, which I don't believe is true. The reason why it died was pretty much because YouTube didn't exist. I mean, think about it like this. Mm, If you want to buy a game, you look on YouTube to see what it looks like before you go out and buy it. But back when Jaguar came out, you couldn't do that. So um, some of the games... And famously, the Jaguar had a 16-bit processor among its, you know, two 32-bit processors. The 16-bit processor was made for the controllers. But then a developer looks at this. Oh, that's the same CPU as the Sega Genesis. Talking about the controller CPU. And then they just make most of the entire game off of that CPU. And it looks like a Genesis game. But then meanwhile, another game comes out where that makes takes full use of the hardware and looks amazing. But depending on which game you ended up coming home with would sour your opinion or make you think it's great. And that experience pretty much just tanked it. Unfortunately, it was cheap. I mean, for the time, I'm sure it was kind of expensive, but less expensive than other systems. And other systems with bad development kits, they succeeded. No problem. The PS3, I mean, yeah, it was rocky at first, but it succeeded. It succeeded, yeah. Those the, the core, the the cell, what is it? Cell core processor in the PS3? So yeah, cell processor, yeah. Cell processor, mm-hmm. yeah. Ugh, that thing was ugh, I never Yep. Ran Yellow Dog Linux really well though. <laughs> until they That's took all. it away. Until they were like, no, the Air Force says you can't do that. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. True story. You could not export PS3s for that reason. Military in fact, the biggest sale that Sony ever made of the PS3s was to the US Air Force. Wow. To run Linux, to use them. They racked them up and use them as uh, compute servers. I wish so, I could have seen that. It's it's a wild story, and it's one of the reasons you can't install Yellow Dog Linux on them anymore. Oh, the my government gosh. was like, yeah, we, we don't want you doing that. So, hmm. The more you know. Well, Jay, I'd love to have you on again, and maybe yeah. I will find my mythical Dreamcast, and we can have a Jaguar v. Dreamcast uh, competition. Yeah, there we go. I there think Dreamcast will win. On, I have to be, admit that, but we'll we can still do it. Well, it is the best console ever made. So yeah, yeah. All right. Well, learnlinux.tv. Thanks for coming, man. Awesome. Great to be here. Awesome. Thanks.